great to see you here this morning, whether you're here live or online. Um, my name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Southwest. And uh, if you're a visitor, if you're here for the first time, um, a particular welcome to you. Um, as Aaron introduced this morning, we're starting a series of four weeks where we're looking at particular topics uh, that, that we relate to our life, uh, questions that we all have about life. Uh, and today we're looking at the issue of happiness. And uh, particularly if you're uh, a visitor or, or you um, are just checking out who Jesus is, what Christianity is about, uh, this is designed for you uh, to think about how Christianity relates uh, to these questions. So today we're looking at happiness. By the way, um, there is a Q&A that we're going to have at the end. And on our slides, I've got a link to the Q&A. So if you have questions as we go along, please um, send those questions in and I'll attempt to address them at the end. Well, this is our picture of our dog, Genghis. Uh, Genghis likes to think that he is scary and intimidating, but as you can see, well, he's really not very scary. Uh, even the magpies in our backyard agree. Um, they love to sit in the yard and they taunt Genghis. Uh, they wait till Genghis comes running at them and barking at them, and then at the last minute, they just fly away out of his reach. So try as he might, Genghis can never catch these magpies. Uh, they're smart enough to just keep out of his reach. All he can do is stand there and bark at them. Well, I want to suggest that chasing happiness is a bit like Genghis chasing after the magpies. It's something that always stays just beyond our reach. Happiness is something that we might be fortunate enough to have for a while, but then it disappears. And even while we have it, I think we all experience a nagging sense that that's not all that there is. There must be something more. There must be something more. To be happy is something that we all want. It's hardwired in us, isn't it, to, to seek after it. But I think the experience of an author, an Aussie author called Catherine Heyman, captures the experience of many of us, uh, perhaps all of us at some point in our lives. Um, at the points in her life when she was really happy, it seemed to Heyman to be too good to be true. Uh, she said to a friend one day, she was sitting in the sun in Oxford in England where she lived, uh, and worked as a writer, uh, living in a beautiful city, married to someone she loved greatly. She writes this, she said, My life brimmed with happiness, but I couldn't completely trust it. And she said to her friend, When I am too happy, I feel sure that the universe will take it away and I'll have to pay for it. And then she goes on to describe that that's pretty much what happened. Um, COVID hit while she was there and Heyman took up rollerblading, uh, which was something she used to love when she was younger. So when she couldn't get out and do other stuff, she took up rollerblading. 
She says, the body has always restored me to happiness, doing physical things like rollerblading, dancing, kayaking, yoga. But then she was hit by a series of injuries. The simple happiness reset of moving my body, she says, was removed and I was frequently miserable. Heyman tried to look for happiness, digging for it, running at it. She did find moments of of genuine happiness, dinners with her kids, uh, conversations with a partner. But this is what she says about happiness. When I was, but it was slippery happiness, falling from my grasp when I sought it too forcefully. I tried to repeat the joy that I found in writing. It's work that makes me happy, giving me purpose. But when I tried to replicate that, it was gone. And then she ends off with what I reckon is quite a profound lesson that she learnt. Here's what she says. Running at happiness is a bit like running at a rainbow. You have to squint at it sideways. Find it as a byproduct that arrives when we are focused on something else. So happiness eludes us, stays out of our grasp when it's a thing that we run after. And we find it when we're actually looking at something else. Now I reckon that Catherine Hayward's experience is something that we can all resonate with. Happiness is something we all want and seek after. But when we chase after it, it often slips out of our grasp. When we genuinely find it, it doesn't last. As Catherine Heyman discovered, when things go wrong, when we suffer in some way through loss or sickness or difficulty, happiness goes just like that. So today we'll be looking at this topic of happiness. There are three parts to where we're going this morning. Firstly, we'll look at where, where we look for happiness. Secondly, we'll look at why, why we can't hold on to it. And the third point I'm going to suggest is that happiness is actually a signpost pointing to something behind it. And so we'll look at what it is that is behind happiness. Where, why and what. That's where we're going today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Um, Father, we thank you um, that you give us happiness and moments of happiness in this life. Father, we ask that you will guide us as we explore this topic and as we explore the idea that behind happiness is something greater, that happiness points to you, happiness points to your love, happiness points to your son Jesus, and we ask that you will guide us uh, and speak to us as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So my first point is where do we look for happiness? Where do we look? For happiness, I think we all, all recognise instinctively that there are different types of happiness. First type I want to look at is kind of something very immediate and short-lived, uh, what we might term enjoyment. Uh, so, for example, the enjoyment that I get uh, each morning from drinking my first cup of coffee. Uh, and l- let me tell you, that brings quite a bit of enjoyment. Uh, or, or doing a hobby doing something we we really enjoy, like uh, playing chess, basket weaving, painting, whatever it is, eating good food, sex, watching a movie, 
All those things can be really enjoyable. We might describe them as bringing short-term happiness. But we know those things don't last, don't we? And when we're doing reasonably well, we instinctively know how to keep these things in their proper perspective, don't we? But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we lean on those things that are just enjoyable to try to do more than they're meant to do, to try to bring more than just happiness for the moment. We try to make them do the heavy lifting of bringing satisfaction, perhaps even meaning to our life. So the alcoholic turns to drink to try to make life worth living. Someone with an addiction to computer games looks to take that escapism of a game and do it for extended periods to to clock off from real life. Many of us, perhaps all of us at some point, know the experience of looking for ongoing happiness in things and in places that just can't deliver more than fleeting enjoyment. There's an old song that I confess I'd never heard of until recently by a singer called Peggy Lee. The song is called Is That All There Is? Uh, It's written way back in 69 and I know none of you will ever have heard of it. And I refer to it not because the song's so famous but because the lyrics really hit upon something true to the experience of all of us. The words in the song are about a woman who's taken as a 12-year-old to a circus. Uh, It's called The Greatest Show on Earth. But as she watched, this girl had a feeling that something was missing. She goes on to use that circus as a launching pad to talk about her experience through her whole life. She gets married, she does all the normal stuff, uh, normal experiences in life. But time and time again, she would do these things, big and small, things that should have delighted and satisfied her, but they didn't. After each episode, she goes back to a repeated refrain in the song. This is what it says. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. Pretty bleak picture of life. But if we're honest with ourselves, haven't we all had experiences like this woman in the song, like the circus. Things that we build up in our minds, perhaps look forward to for days, weeks, months or even longer. And then when it arrives, it kind of leaves an empty taste in our mouths. It just doesn't deliver. Is that all there is? And so perhaps we've turned to pleasure to seek enjoyment in things that amuse us, distract us, numb us to the world for just a little while. But then we realise, like the girl in the song, that dancing or booze, whatever it is that we turn to, it's really just hollow and empty as well. And so seeking happiness in short-term pleasure... And enjoyment doesn't work in the long term, does it? It's like trying to survive on junk food. 
It might give you a sugar burst or a bit of energy for a bit, but pretty soon you realise that what you need is a proper three-course meal. Now, as I said before, I think we know that instinctively. And we generally look for happiness from things that are more lasting. Perhaps it's from a job or marriage, relationships, family. If we describe that first kind of happiness as enjoyment, to describe this happiness we look for in in things like a job or marriage, we might use the word satisfaction or contentment to describe this sort of happiness. And we understand that it's different to the kind of sugar rush enjoyment of of that short-term happiness. It's a more settled state of mind, something that gets you up in the morning. It gives you purpose, a sense of doing something worthwhile, satisfaction. Um, first kind of happiness brings enjoyment or pleasure, but as I said, we know that it doesn't last. But this kind of settled happiness that I'll call satisfaction, we all need that. And we all hope to feel that when we wake up in the morning. A lot of us look for it, as I said, in a career, job satisfaction. And that's good and right to feel like we're doing something, making something that's contributing to the world. Perhaps you're a teacher and you get that from teaching children in a way that's building them up, equipping them for life. Or perhaps creating your computer program, computer programmer and creating a computer program adds, you're doing something that adds productivity or enjoyment or is beneficial to people in some way. If we're fortunate enough to have a job like that, that's a good thing and something we should genuinely enjoy and celebrate. But even more than a job, we have a sense that what matters in life are relationships, don't we? Like family, friends, a partner. Whether our experience is is good or not, we have a sense that Uh, how important those things are. And we rightly seek happiness in those relationships. We understand that that's what we were created for, that we were created for relationship. No one is an island. No one was designed to live as a lone ranger, going through life unaffected, untouched by others. And when our closest relationships go wrong, we know how lonely and and devastating the experience can be. So we know intuitively how much our happiness depends on the quality of our relationships. Before I was married, I uh, went through a period when I was obsessed with finding the right girl to marry. Um, Because I, I thought that finding a lifelong partner was a key to my happiness. Uh, When I met my wife, Julie, uh, I knew that she was the right girl. I knew that pretty quickly. Uh, And our marriage has been a wonderful blessing. I, I can honestly say that it's gotten better and better with time. But still, it's not perfect. As good as that relationship is, it doesn't meet all my needs. And I certainly don't meet all Julie's needs. 
Marriage doesn't provide all we need for happiness and satisfaction. And no human relationship can. So if we look for all our needs to be met in marriage or a job or a study or achievements, we're going to fall short. We'll end up disappointed. And we'll end up saying, like the words of the song, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Surely there must be more. And all this leaves us with a whole bunch of questions. Why do we have such a deep need for happiness, but it ends up being like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Why can't we find lasting happiness? That brings us to our second point. Why can't we hold on to happiness? That was also the experience of the uh, Bible reading that Jeanette read out for us uh, a few moments ago. Um, She was reading from the words of uh, a man called the teacher. Um, The teacher is a kind of wise guru in Israel, an expert in how to live wisely. And he wanted to explore this idea of finding happiness. So he did it by experimenting in all sorts of ways with indulging himself in all sorts of pleasure. He tried parting and throwing money around. Let's just look at a couple of parts that we, uh, that we, from our reading. I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. He also threw himself into work and achieving stuff. Later on he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. This man was lucky enough to have plenty of money to do anything that he wanted and more leisure time than he could poke a stick at. And what's his conclusion at the end of the day? Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Pretty bleak conclusion, isn't it? All of these things let him down. None of them delivered the happiness that he was after. All this stuff just left him deflated like Catherine Heyman experienced and the character in the song experienced about the circus. But there's another reason that the teacher uh, goes on uh, to explain why happiness slips through our grasp. He goes on to explain it in chapter 3. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. 
This bloke was a, a glass half-empty guy. He would have been a hoot to talk to at a party, wouldn't he? We all die. And for the teacher, that hangs like a dark cloud over everything we do. Our achievements, our projects, all our work. It's all meaningless if we end up pushing up daisies from the ground. That's what he says. And even the things we cherish the most, our family, our partner, our best friends, well, they're not going to last forever either. No matter how much happiness we might get fleetingly from those things, from relationships, work, achievements, they all end up being stolen by death. Now you might be thinking, well, of course, Marshall, wake up. That's the cold, hard reality of living in a material world. Everything ends up decaying and dying, including us. That's just natural. But why does that stop us enjoying life, enjoying the moment and making the sense uh, of the time we have on earth? Why, why not enjoy life uh, instead of the, all this kind of morbidly dwelling on death? Well, the teacher actually wrestled with that question too. At different points in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said that there's nothing better for us than to eat and drink and enjoy what we have. But still, he's not satisfied with that. He's still dogged by the idea of us desperately searching for happiness, but it ends up being stolen by death. And the reason he's not content with just living and then dying is that he has a nagging sense that there must be something more, that there is something more. He can't quite put his finger on what it is, but he knows it's there. This is what he says in chapter 3. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Is this all there is, the song goes. No, there must be something more, says the teacher. And he says that because of two things. The existence of beauty and the reality that God has set eternity in the human heart. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being transfixed by beauty. Um, we sometimes use the word being transported by it, don't we? Uh, where you've been mesmerised by a painting or a beautiful piece of music or a sunset. It's really hard to put it into words, but it's something that beckons you to it. It, it creates a hunger in you. Not for the music or the sunset itself but a yearning for something behind it, for something else. I've had that experience. Uh, I grew up on a farm. When I was 16 or 17, during one particular summer holidays, I used to love going to one, one particular place on the farm. It looked out over some distant mountains. Uh, it was beautiful. And around sunset, I used to go there sometimes. And just sit and watch. And I experienced that longing for something. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I wasn't religious. I, I couldn't even tell you if I believed in God at that point. 
but I know that I had a kind of intuitive knowledge that behind this beauty was something that I wanted. Something I knew instinctively was the key to happiness, satisfaction and meaning. Something I wanted, but I knew I couldn't get from this world. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, uh, describes the same thing like this. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something they cannot be had, that cannot be had in this world. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Whether we've really thought about it or not, we all have a yearning for something more. And the reason for that is the one we just read from the teacher in Ecclesiastes, that God has set eternity in the human heart, a knowledge that this world is not all there is, that this life of 70 or 80 years is not all there is, and that no amount of pleasure or good relationships or stuff can ever answer our deepest need for happiness and satisfaction because we were made for something more. And that brings us to our third point. What is it that's behind happiness? What is the something more that we long for? What we long for is what we were made for. And what we were made for is to find our happiness and satisfaction and identity and meaning not in the stuff that we do or achieve, not in our, even in our relationships with one another, although that is getting closer to the mark. We are made for relationship and our ultimate happiness is found in knowing the one who made us. The one who created us for relationship with him. He calls us to find happiness in him. In the New Testament, in the Bible, in the book of John, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Bread's a staple food, isn't it? It's different to a side dish that never really satisfies, isn't it? Like lettuce. I hate lettuce. Thankfully, Jesus didn't call himself the lettuce of life. <laughs> bread is something that fills you up. I don't know if you're a bread eater. Maybe you're a rice eater or a pasta eater. Same, same idea. They're, they're all staples. Things that you eat to fill you up, to satisfy our hunger. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking literally about bread. It's a metaphor for something that takes away our hunger for our deepest human needs. And notice from this, from this verse, um, these words that Jesus spoke, that he isn't just a guru, a teacher who is pointing the way 
to the bread of life. No, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He himself is the answer. Knowing him, having a relationship with him, trusting him, are the way to find true happiness and lasting satisfaction. Why? Why, you might ask? Because that's what we were created for. We, Jesus, is who we are created for. We were made to find our happiness and our satisfaction in him. But our problem is that we look for it in the wrong places. I don't mean that it's wrong to find pleasure in our relationships, our work, um, our achievements, etc. But we look to, to those things to do more than they are meant to do. We look to them to provide our identity, to define us. We make the good things in life into the ultimate things. We put these things, in other words, in the place of God. And that's a project, friends, that's doomed to fail. Because nothing in this world is big enough to provide me with my identity, my ultimate satisfaction and happiness. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is putting things in this world in the place of God. And the result of that isn't just disappointment, and it does result in that, happiness slipping through our fingers, but it also twists us, it corrupts us. It makes us less than who we are meant to be. It dehumanises us. Jesus is the only one who can provide us with ultimate happiness, with satisfaction and with our identity. But he isn't just the one who satisfies our hunger. He is also our king. And as his creatures, as his creation, we are his subjects and we, we owe him our love, our worship, our lives. When we look for happiness in other places... It robs Jesus of his rightful place. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, well, Marshall, that all sounds very nice. Uh, Jesus sounds like he is a great option. But why should I trust in him over other options? Well, what about other religions? What makes Jesus so special? How do I know he can satisfy me? How do I know that he loves me? Because he died for you. He died because that was the only way for us to be in right relationship with God. Now, unfortunately, we haven't got time to explore what that means or how that works today. Um, we will try to unpack that in, these, in the coming weeks. We'll look, look at the meaning of Jesus' death. So please come back to hear more because it's crucially important. But for now, I'll just say this. Jesus died to pay the debt that we owe God but can never pay ourselves. What debt, you might ask? The debt of our failure to worship God as the true God and looking to other things to find our satisfaction, happiness and identity. 
like I said before, not just look to them for pleasure and enjoyment, but by making those things God. Making them an idol is another way of saying it. Looking to them to provide our ultimate meaning. Our failure to worship the true God is a debt that is so great that we can never pay it. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to pay that debt for us. That's how I know that Jesus loves me. That's how I know that he is worth following. That's how I know that he is the one who can provide true happiness and satisfaction. Uh, Now I'm going to get the band up now. Um, But while they're coming up, I just want to ask you to start to think about how you are going to respond to Jesus. Um, Now, you might be, this might be the first time you've really started to think of the question. And you might have a hundred questions going around in your head. So please take advantage of the Q&A. But we also want to help you in that process of thinking seriously about how you're going to respond to Jesus. Now, we haven't really begun to even scratch the surface of who Jesus is and what he did. So you may not be in a position to really make uh, any kind of decision uh, today, and so I'm not asking you to do that. But what I'm asking you to do is to begin to take the claims of Jesus seriously. I'm encouraging you to start on a journey to explore the claims of Jesus and who he is. Uh, And to help you to do that, uh, Aaron mentioned earlier that we've got a response form online. Uh, In fact, I'm going to get everyone, not now, but in in a few minutes, to to, uh, fill out that response form. So between now and then, please start thinking about that question. How am I going to respond to Jesus?